Hello, and welcome to the Folklore Podcast Book Club, where we take an in-depth look at fiction and non-fiction books with a folklore focus, and meet their authors. In today's episode, we're delving into the world of the seance with Lisa Morton, the author of the book Calling the Spirits, A History of Seances. Described by author Alma Katsu as an impressive piece of research and a must-read for anyone interested in spiritualism, Calling the Spirits investigates the history of our fascination with trying to communicate with the dead, from the necromancers of Homer's time through to the emergence of Victorian spiritualism, the Fox Sisters and Helen Duncan. The book also takes in modern psychics, Ouija boards and paranormal investigation. Lisa Morton is a screenwriter, author of non-fiction books, Bram Stoker award-winning prose writer and an expert on Halloween, whose work was described by the American Library Association's Reader's Advisory Guide to Horror as consistently dark, unsettling and frightening. She's published four novels, 150 short stories, and three books on the history of Halloween. Lisa lives in Los Angeles and also online at lisamorton.com. Our book reviewer, Hilary Wilson, caught up with Lisa recently to talk about the book and the subject of seances more generally. Yeah, hi, I am here today with Lisa Morton to discuss her book on seances. Could you tell us, how does the typical seance differ from the idea of necromancy? Um, The seance is very different in form from necromancy. And that's one of the things I talked about in the book was uh, how the seance was a completely new way of contacting the dead. Um, Before that, it was usually a solitary practice. Um, It was something where you would either be a magician who would perform a very difficult ritual, or you might be someone who was advised by an oracle or something to go to a particular place. Maybe, um, for example, in the ancient world, falling asleep on a grave was supposed to be one way to contact the dead and they would come to you in your dreams. Um, And you don't get this notion of contacting the dead in a sort of group until the seance arrives in the mid 19th century. And not only is it this thing that's now done with a group and with one person who is designated as a medium, but it's now done in a sort of spirit of um, the the dead are going to be very convivial. They're, they're going to be wanting to talk to you to communicate in the past. It was often about controlling the dead or about um, binding them to the magician or about getting very specific information from them. Now, suddenly it's about, we just want to talk to you. And so that was another part of the seance that was kind of very different from the way it had been under the old necromancy from the past. And with, um, you know, with the idea of like necromancy, there was also a certain degree of, we shouldn't be meddling in this. You know, there was a bit more of danger if I was understanding correctly, you know, as whereas with seances, it was a much more celebratory kind of party atmosphere. Yeah, exactly. I I refer to the seance as one part party, one part magic show and one part uh, revivalist meeting. (laughs) 
um, they were they were really fun, joyous events, which of course is also a marked change from the old magic. And as you're as you're mentioning, calling the dead in the past had been fraught with peril. Um, there were so many things that could go wrong, and um, it was also the especially in the the forms that involved like the magician enacting the ritual and the rituals are crazy i mean if you read these things in like the grimoires and the the um the old books the text and so forth i they are essentially impossible i mean get things like a dragon's blood and you know um go to a specific crossroad at night and be there at midnight and do this and do that. And um, so they were, they often had these spooky settings and you were in a graveyard, you were out in the middle of the night, you were at a crossroads, you were under a particular kind of tree. And yeah, so they always had this element of, of the macabre, of spookiness, of peril. And um, I think that element of a little tiny hint of spookiness is still in the seance, but now it's fun. It's not something that is potentially going to, you know, send you to hell at this point. And, but mentioning that it's part revival, um, that ties into the whole notion of it being more of a religious experience. Yeah, spiritualism really is a religion. I mean, it is still classified that way in many countries. Um, and here in the U.S., we have the Spiritualist Church as a recognized church with the thousands of followers. Um, spiritualism was a religion and it was one of the interesting things about it is the only religion that in the 19th century genuinely believed it could be proven scientifically now it didn't matter to the spiritualists that it was continually disproven <laughs> scientifically and that actually was one of my big questions as I was writing this book um, the further I got into it the more it was like why did they continue to hang on to this belief in the face of continual evidence proving it was not happening? And I mean, part of it is, of course, just the notion of faith um, mm -hmm. and the way they tied themselves into these logic knots to deny the debunking and the fraud that was being proven was fascinating. I mean, they would say, oh, no, 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 that medium is completely reliable and is genuine it was just that one day that he or she did this because their powers were not good that day you know no it was only that one time and um so it absolutely was a religion and still is because of that element of faith but it's interesting that in the 20th century they dispensed with that scientific thing um, that is no longer a central tenet of spiritualism. If you go look at the modern websites, you will see that there is much more of an emphasis now on healing. Mm -hmm. That's part of spiritual spiritualist belief now in the 21st century is much more about healing. And, and uh, they still have seances. They still believe they can talk to the dead, but they're no longer out to prove it scientifically. Uh, with the notion of the disproval, it reminds me a bit of the Cottingley Ferry affair. Where absolutely it was proven you know they found the book that these fairies were cut out of that the girls you know then took some absolutely gorgeous photos of you know it's it's incredible looking at high definition you know photos of it just how beautiful they were but they found the book they found the cutouts of the fairies but they both went to their deathbed if i recall correctly claiming that at least one of the photos was indeed genuine 
and that they only hoaxed it to convince people about yeah. what they were seeing and what they were experiencing. Yeah, they absolutely are gorgeous photos. And and it's interesting that you would bring that up because one of the people who was the biggest defenders about that was Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who also was one of the biggest defenders of spiritualism. And I mean, toured the country in the 20th century giving lectures about spiritualism. Yeah, and then uh, there was the entire row that he and Houdini carried on for quite a number of years. And there was, and to me, that their relationship is the single most fascinating relationship that I discovered in the whole history of seances. Um, they were such interesting, uh, such an interesting pair because, it, for one thing, they kind of swapped places throughout their lives. Conan Doyle started off being a doctor. He was a little bit skeptical, but he was convinced early on about mediumship and, and communicating with the dead. Houdini was the one who started off as a bit of a believer. And then as he investigated more and more mediums, became convinced it was all fraud. And um, they started off as great friends. Um, Houdini was a fan of writers. He had tremendous admiration for writers. He had a huge personal library. Um, and he was so flattered and so honored to be in communication with this great writer, Conan Doyle, that he actually had a special little velvet lined box that he kept Conan Doyle's letters in. Um, he really treasured those, and it was all their their families were close. They would have vacations together and so forth, and then it all fell apart. And I think it's 1922 um, when they are vacationing together, and Conan Doyle's wife has taken up mediumship and wants to have a seance with Houdini. and And it's the afternoon. He goes up to the the hotel room where they're staying. She proceeds to uh, go into a trance and produce automatic writing, which is, you know, the idea where you're in a trance state and you're just writing madly. And, and it's supposed to be communications from the dead. She produces, I think, something like 22 pages, which are supposedly from Houdini's mother. And Houdini was mad about his mother. I mean, he referred to her as as my sainted mother over and over and um when he saw these 22 pages of automatic writing that Conan Doyle's wife claimed were from his mother, he went nuts. Um, he was absolutely offended. He said he wrote about it. Um, he noted that, for example, his mother did not speak a word of English. That would be a problem. <laughs> yeah, right. 22 pages, obviously, in English. He was deeply offended by that. It severed their friendship. And they became arch enemies after that um to the point some of it actually is is kind of amusing as bitter as it is when houdini put out his book a magician among the spirits which i think is 1924 he sent a copy to conan doyle and that particular book is his debunking bible and he goes into at length all of the mediums he defrauded how they did or who defrauded people how they did their tricks and so forth and um Conan Doyle's copy has one little handwritten note across the title page, which says a malicious book. Oh, gosh. And um, so after that, they went on rival lecture tours and they would often be like in the same city one night after the other where Houdini is lecturing about 
debunking fraudulent mediums and he's demonstrating how they do things. And then here comes Conan Doyle maybe the next night and he is lecturing about how authentic this all is. And it was absolutely one of the great friendships slash rivalries in paranormal history. Yeah, and it was like the spiritualist movement was powerful enough that on his deathbed, Houdini actually claimed, like he had to you know, claim and say, no, the spiritualists did not kill me. This was an accident. Right, yeah. Because people were thinking that they were almost like a mafia going in and you know, killing people who were debunking them. There, yeah, there are some interesting facts and rumors surrounding Houdini's death. Um, the, the, the truth is he probably was not killed by the punch, yep. which was delivered. Oh, really? Yeah, they, um, the, the, the evidence now suggests that it was probably a problem he had been dealing with for some time. Um, now, certainly he, the punch to the gut that the young man delivered didn't help, but it probably was not truly the cause of death. And um, of course, Houdini became very sick shortly thereafter and did not seek medical attention. Had he gone in earlier when he was having high fevers and so forth, they might have been able to catch the infection that was spreading through him. Um, and that's really what killed him. But yeah, the, the rumor that the young man who punched him, who was just a student at a local college, was um, somehow some sort of spiritualist hitman. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it was interesting and not any basis in fact. No, so the, the spiritualists, it all began um, with the Fox sisters, correct? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, in 1848. Uh, which is just another kind of interesting thing if you compare the Fox sisters, you know, beginning to talk about communicating with spirits with you know, the accusations with the Salem witch trials, you know, started by a similar group of young women. Um, was there, you know, a belief that there was, you know, just them seeking attention? Because um, wasn't there a rumor that the house was haunted before they started to, you know, to do their communication? Or was that just something that was also... I don't know so much about that. They were in a rented farmhouse kind of out in the middle of nowhere. They up in uh, up, upper state New York near Rochester. And they were they were waiting for construction on what was going to be their main house. And okay. The um, Fox family had, I think it was five children, and the two youngest were Katie and Maggie, and they were still living at home. The other three had moved on, and uh, Katie and Maggie were the ones who first started saying they were hearing these rapping sounds coming from this farmhouse, and um, then their, their parents started hearing it, and the girls devised a way of communicating with these rapping sounds, and they could ask questions, and the number of raps would dictate the answers, and um, the word of this got out, probably from some of the servants working for the family, and within weeks, hundreds of people were showing up at this farmhouse in the middle of nowhere wanting to witness this, and the girls were happy to oblige. They, I think, did enjoy the attention. Um, they uh, would engage in these very early versions of seances in that farmhouse. But then their sister, Leah, who lived in Rochester, got the idea of, hey, maybe there's some money to be made here. And she brought Katie and Maggie to live with her in Rochester. And she began to charge for these seances. And this is where we really get the first true version of the seance. Okay. 
is in Leah's house in Rochester, where people are coming in, they're paying a small amount of money, and they are seated at her large dining table with Katie and Maggie at one end. And during the course of the seance, they're witnessing these rapping sounds coming from around. They're asking questions. The questions seemingly are being answered. And then as Katie and Maggie's talents as mediums progress, we start to witness things like the table is now thumping and banging and rising. And um, they become superstars out of this. They are the first true superstars. They essentially invent both the seance and the religion of spiritualism. And um, before long, they are traveling. They are being, there are mediums now popping up all over both the U.S. and the U.K. Um, they are debunked as early as 1855. Oh, gosh. It is revealed that they are creating the wrapping sounds by cracking their toe knuckles in a very particular way but it doesn't really stop them from being gigantic stars in this spiritualist arena um they are very interesting to me because they kind of come to a sad ending it's not a happy story for the fox sisters in 1888 um they are very upset with a trial that's taking place in New York with a medium who had defrauded a very wealthy older gentleman out of uh, a townhouse right on townhouse. Uh, a townhouse, I think, right on Central Park, um, as well as considerable amounts of money and so forth. And um, they were upset reading the accounts of this trial. And it was Maggie who came forward and said, it's all fake. Everything we did is fake. Um, and then Katie joins in. Leah never did, but uh, Maggie and Katie actually gave interviews to newspapers. Maggie gave a big presentation at a big auditorium. And they said it's all debunked. Uh, I mean, it's all fraud. Um, here's how we did it. Uh, there is no such thing as contact with the dead. And, and there's an incredibly sad passage from Maggie where she says she tried. She would go into graveyards at night and sit on tombs and hope that something would reach out to her. Nothing ever did. And not long after 1888, they both die. Um, Maggie is in terrible poverty and they essentially both die of alcoholism. Um, so it's a really unhappy ending for them. Did them speaking out um, as admitting to their fraud, did that have any impact upon the spiritualist movement within the U.S.? Yeah, it pretty much killed it for a while. Also, about the same time, there was a big commission that had been set up to study spiritualism and mediumship. And they concluded as well that it was all fraud. So this sort of double whammy really set spiritualism back until um, World War One. And you have mentioned in your book, and I think that it's something that a lot of people almost intrinsically realize that you know during times of great stress, belief in these sorts of notions tends to be on the rise. So it would make sense for an event like World War One to reignite. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it had happened after the American Civil War. We saw a spike in it. And um, it comes roaring back after um, World War One. And with both the Civil War and World War One, one of the things that happens um, is that people are losing loved ones and they're not but they're not even sure that the loved ones are lost because 
because so many people died in these wars who were never accounted for. Um, or they had died and you knew they had died, but of course you had no closure with them. You didn't get to see them a last time. And yeah, so it resulted explain also with the civil war, the rise in things like spirit photography with Mumler. Right, exactly. Yeah. Because you know, photography was still very new and him taking pictures of these ghostly figures, you know, alongside the living, it didn't necessarily matter if maybe that didn't quite look like how you remembered the person looked, you know, just to be able to have something of them, you know, really it impacts a person. Yeah. And Mumbler, by the way, was so successful. He actually was offering spirit photographs via mail order for a while. You didn't even have to come in and get your photo taken. You could just order one through the mail, but um, yeah, so definitely you get this sense of people seeking closure, wanting that final communication. And that, by the way, is one of the reasons that at the beginning of this pandemic, I said, we're going to see a big spike in paranormal belief again, because it was the same kind of thing where your loved one is dying in a hospital that you cannot get into. Yeah. So yeah. you don't, again, have that sense of closure. And even if you were not losing a loved one in the COVID pandemic, um, you're isolated. You have that sense of, I don't, I don't have communication with people. And, um, and then there was, there was another thing that happened with the, the COVID pandemic that was interesting, which is suddenly people are stuck in their own houses and they're noticing these things happening in their own houses. They probably have never had enough time to really realize before, like, what's that? What's that weird creak overhead that happens every day at 11 p.m., you know? Um, so, again, you get another spike in the paranormal belief because of that. Uh, and that makes me um, think of what you were you know, talking about. Uh, one of my favorite authors, Mary Roach, that um, she went and actually took a class on mediumship. And she came to some interesting conclusions um, about what drives people to do it. Would you yeah. want to talk a bit about that? Yeah, that was that was a great book, Spook by Mary Roach. And yeah, I, I really, I'm a fan of her work too. Yeah, she's great. In fact, the, the opening chapter of that book is the one that's guaranteed to make everybody go, where she's she's pulling out an old piece of ectoplasm, but we'll we'll get into that. <laughs> yes, the the mediumship thing, well. Uh, there were some interesting things I uncovered about the 19th century mediums. Mm -hmm. um, in the 19th century, women were very constricted in terms of what they could do with their lives. You could, you were expected to be a wife and a mother. And if you didn't become a wife and a mother, you maybe could be a domestic in a large household or work in a factory. And that was just about it. Very bright you, futures. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You didn't have a lot of options. Um, mediumship was a very attractive alternative to some young women who were looking at where their lives were going. And, and here instead is a job that is not only going to be dramatic and fun and so forth, but you are going to be hobnobbing with royalty if you're good at it. And I think of somebody like Florence Cook, who was an interesting young medium in the 19th century, who was pretty, very young. I think she was like 17 when she started being getting a lot of acclaim as a medium. Um, she was probably very 
charismatic and skilled and flamboyant. And um, I mean, here was she was from a middle class family. Her options really were that that's it. You're going to get married or you're going to be a domestic. And instead, Florence is the toast of London society. I mean, she is every night she is giving presentations to earls and dukes and lords and ladies and and she, I think, ends up traveling briefly around Europe and is, is as Daniel Doug, Douglas Holm had done, giving presentations to the kings and queens in France and Germany and Austria and the Ottoman Empire and so forth. So you can see how this would have been an, an incredibly attractive alternative to a lot of women in the 19th century. Um, and I think that on top of that, some of them I do think really did believe that they were genuinely in communication with the spirit world. Um, I think one of the more interesting cases of that was a woman named Georgiana Houghton. Mm -hmm. And she was a medium who went into a trance state and claimed that she was communicating with great artists of the past. Um, Tyson is one that she would talk about and um, Raphael and so forth. And she produced hundreds of paintings which are absolutely stunning they are gorgeous and at the time she could not sell them she had a gallery exhibition towards the end of her life none of the paintings sold she is now considered to be one of the mothers of surrealism oh, that's amazing and it is amazing and please go look up these i mean you can find these photos easily on uh, the paintings online and they are absolutely gorgeous and so with her you have to think that she really did believe she was doing this um and um to produce these extraordinary works of art i think she really thought she was in communication with great artists of the past but a lot of them i think were frauds and were knew it um Florence did go on later on in her life to confess that to a few people, apparently, um, as did a few of the other women. And wasn't um, Florence also um, in a relationship with the man who was examining her to see yes. whether or not she was a fraud? Yeah, that was a very interesting thing. She, uh, There was a gentleman who was part of the spiritualist community named Sir William Crooks. He was actually knighted in the 20th century, but in the 19th century, he was um, still quite famous, um, and he investigated many of the mediums. And with Florence, he actually brought her into his home, and she lived there for almost six months. Better and he, he investigated, yes, indeed. He ran all kinds of tests on her and so forth. He ended up producing... 43 photographs, I think, of Florence during her seances. Um, Florence, at that point, was famous for producing a spirit guide named Katie King. And Katie King would manifest as a full-body spirit who would step out in the middle of the seance, and she would be dressed in these white robes and this white headpiece, and move among the sitters, and they could actually touch her. Now, it didn't seem to matter to any of them that she bore an uncanny resemblance to Florence, um, that Florence was not seen together with Katie King. Florence would be in what they called the spirit cabinet, which was usually just a room that had a curtain. Um, so at the beginning of the seance, Florence would step behind that curtain, would supposedly go into a trance state and materialize Katie King. 
Kirks even has photos of himself arm in arm with Katie King. And um, they are amazing photos. Um, and he went on record repeatedly saying that everything that Florence did was authentic. Katie King was real. Um, he jeopardized some of his scientific standing with this. I mean, other scientists were mocking him for these conclusions. And later on in the early 20th century, Florence did have affairs with other people who claimed that she told them that she had completely defrauded crooks, um, that they had an affair right there in his house with his wife and something like seven children. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so. a difficult thing to pull off. It would, but hey, if you can get people to believe that you dressed in a white robe is a spirit named Katie King, you can probably pull off an affair like that. <laughs> but it struck me that, you know, with Florence Cook, um, that being a medium would also just allow a certain degree of sexual agency that yeah. would not be allowed for, you know, any nice lady, you know, of that time which was something that you were saying was also being considered um, with home, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, there definitely was an erotic element to the seance. I mean, if you just think about it, you're in a dark room, the gas light is turned down low and you are seated close together to people at a big table and your thighs are touching and the medium is probably doing things like taking their shoes off and sticking their toes out to run up and down your leg, which you are supposed to believe is a spirit doing that. Um, and with Daniel Douglas home, who is one of is probably the greatest of the spiritualist mediums. There also is conjecture that he may have been having gay affairs with some of his patrons. Yeah, which um, wouldn't have been uh, viewed kindly at the time. Right. Although it was less uncommon at the time for people of the same sex to sleep together. Um, that actually was not that unusual. There are accounts of him sleeping in the beds of some of the lords and so forth that he was working with. And um, there, like I said, the conjecture is that he may have been gay or at least bisexual. He was married several times. And I would certainly not be surprised if we discovered that he had affairs with some of his female clients as well. Um, he was definitely an extraordinarily charismatic and gifted medium. Um, you look at photos of him now and you, you might think, really, that guy? But obviously, he was incredibly good at what he did. Um, a couple of his feet remain unexplained. He is very famous for a, an event called the Ashley House Levitation, when two British lords and a cousin watched him supposedly levitate out of his chair, out a window on a second or third floor, um, and come back in through another window. And that is something that has now been studied for a century. People have offered dozens of explanations of how he did it. They've gone to the actual house and measured the, the space between the windows and all kinds of things. And um, so we're still not entirely sure how he did some of the things that he did. But um, that one made newspapers and so forth for weeks. 
there's a couple of things that happened during that time with mediums that still haven't been you know, quite satisfactorily explained. You wrote about a trial that took place where a magician was able to create the full body apparition that the medium was, but then he was not able to reabsorb it into his body. So obviously it just wasn't a fake since he couldn't recreate that trick. Yeah, that was a famous um, trial from, I think it's 1910, and it was the magician J.N. Maskelin, who was also, like Houdini, a, a magician who was debunking a lot of mediums. And um, the uh, um, medium in that particular lawsuit was a guy named uh, Monk. And Monk had been, has a really interesting place in, in seance history. He was the uh, first guy who was arrested and did time um, under the vagrancy laws, which were what they used to arrest mediums with. Um, and there are a lot of extraordinary descriptions of Monk's seances and so forth. And he would do elaborate things at them, um, produce glowing orbs and all kinds of things. And there's one very funny um, description of him um, escaping from his rented flat when they were coming after him at one point and so forth. But um, the trial in that question actually involved not so much Monk as a fellow who believed in Monk and uh, Masculine had said you're crazy it's all fraud and so this fellow sued Masculine and so Masculine at the trial said I want to bring the jury to one of my performances and I will do everything that you say that Monk did and, and Monk did produce ectoplasm he produced a full body apparition apparently from his midsection and then he pulled it back in and, and the photo. Yeah, it's very strange sounding and looking. There are some photos of this. And so masculine actually did produce the full body apparition from his midsection. He really just forgot the part about pulling <laughs> it back in. I mean, obviously he was capable of it. He just missed it. Um, and so he lost the trial and he ended up having to pay this guy a, a tremendous fee for having slandered him because he could not prove that Monk was a fake. Yeah, the whole uh, notion of the ectoplasm was really <laughs> fascinating and how, you know, over time the mediums had to keep upping the ante of what they were capable of doing because initially it was enough to just exude some ectoplasm but then full body apparitions full body apparitions that had to move you know the yeah. amount of things that they pulled off um, I have to admit that I finished reading the book wishing that I could go to one of these seances just to see what it would be like yeah me too I would love to travel back in time and visit a few of these things uh, the yeah the ectoplasm stuff was interesting and, and continued into the middle of the 20th century um, one of my favorite mediums is a woman named Helen Duncan. And, and Helen was someone who produced ectoplasm in her seances. And she would sit down and she was tested um, by Harry Price, who was a big investigator, famous ghost hunter. He was working for the, um, the uh, Society for Psychical Research. And he took her into a laboratory and he tested her. And, and what he did was 
he tied her up in a chair and he blindfolded her and turned the lights down and she proceeded to exude this ectoplasm, which when it was tested, they concluded was cheesecloth. And apparently Helen had an uncanny ability to regurgitate at will. Um, so she would swallow the cheesecloth before the seance would start and then could actually regurgitate it on command during the seance. Other, it is incredible. I mean, I always say, you know what, the ability to regurgitate on will seems almost as impressive to me as being able to talk. To right. That's yeah. a, that is amazing skill. Um, and uh, there were other mediums who... Um, hid their ectoplasm in other places. There was a famous one named Marjorie Crandon, who Houdini and Arthur Conan Doyle both investigated. And um, she would perform her seances quite often in the nude. And she was very attractive. And so her sitters were almost all male. So this served a double purpose. I mean, on the one hand, she is saying to them, look, I'm naked. There's nowhere I have to hide this stuff. And on the other hand, of course, they're also smitten by her that oh, yeah. for her to get away with things. And she was tucking this stuff into her vagina um, and then producing it during these seances. And she produced a different kind of ectoplasm. Her ectoplasm was not just cheesecloth or paper or something. She apparently would go to the butcher and get things like cow lungs, and she would produce that. So she's producing this ectoplasm that is sort of slimy and organic. Um, yeah, it's and, like the uh, lady in the 1700s who gave birth to rabbits. Right. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. So um, Marjorie was kind of notorious she was uh like i said very attractive the the male investigators were often very taken with her and cut her a lot of slack i think it's really interesting how the modern concept of the seance now the way that it's depicted in horror is you know such a a terrifying rife dark thing yeah whereas the reality of you know what it was like then was you know, much more playful, um, you know, to my understanding, you know, there was a, a serious element to it, but you know, it was almost a party atmosphere. It absolutely was. And, and it's really interesting. You can read I mean, the spiritualists were nuts about documenting their stuff and they had thousands of newspapers and pamphlets and books. And so you can read actual descriptions of seances written by people who had just experienced them and they sound like so much fun. Um, and I mean, they will, uh, the seances would usually start with singing and you would be with friends and you'd be in a nice, pleasant home. And so the, the singing served two purposes. It, it allowed people to sort of get into the mood and come together and so forth. But it also covered any noises that the medium might be making in setting up things that they were going to be using during the seance. Um, the lights are turned down. The gas lights are going low. Now you're starting to see these amazing things materialize around you. It might be an accordion that floats over your head while it's playing. It might be one of these glowing blobs of light that's flying above you. You might suddenly have um, something miraculously appear in your lap. A fresh piece of your favorite fruit might suddenly have dropped from nowhere seemingly. And 
That was called a port, by the way, A-P-P-O-R-T-S. And there were mediums who specialized in a port. And it, by the time you finish reading these descriptions, they often end with, it was the greatest night of my life. It was one of the most wondrous things I've ever seen. And they just sound remarkable. And yes, I would love to be able to travel back and witness one of those. I also wonder about the atmosphere, how much that was conducive to you know, the people just believing more because you're in this, you're, you're in a, you're surrounded by people who are all singing with you. You're surrounded by people who all want to believe so badly. Um, in the, it was in the 1970s, the Philip experiments where people tried to recreate the atmosphere, you know, of the seance to conjure up a fake ghost Mm -hmm. and nothing was working for months until they started incorporating that party atmosphere Right. Yeah. They tried for a year with um, essentially meditation, a group of them meditating together and in, in the belief that it would generate psychokinesis that would start to make things happen. And it didn't happen. And you're right. It wasn't until they put it into the form of the seance and they did the singing and the whole bit. And yes, then things started to happen. And um, there, not everybody, by the way, came out of the seances believing um there were but even the people who did not believe tended to come out of them going that was really fun it sounds Uh, fun (laughs) it does sound fun i mean like i said it's like a magic show that you're watching performed in front of you and you're there with friends and um there were a few people who were out and out really disgusted by the whole thing um famously robert browning the poet was one of them um, he did a seance with Daniel Home, D.D. Home, and his wife, Elizabeth, was quite into Mr. Home and, and was somewhat of a believer. Mr. Browning was not. Um, he thought Home was just a complete nutter fraud. He wrote a gigantic poem called Mr. Sludge the Medium, <laughs> which is a a massive attack on mediums and particularly home. He talks about the fact that the medium removes their shoes, which was something that is believed that home did um, to reach out with their toes and touch people under the table and so forth. And um, so he was certainly one of the most famous of the um, angry skeptics. I need to read that poem. That sounds awesome. (laughs) It's very amusing. It's also, it is really long. I mean, it's like 30 pages long, but um, a lot of it is very, very funny and very biting. Uh, he should have claimed that it was automatically written just to see what would happen then. <laughs> right. Uh, I'm wondering if maybe the you know, way that spiritualism continued um, to have so many ardent believers was partially just because of what an accepting community it was. Yeah. Yeah. You know, to be able to continue to have these experiences of going to seances, of being with others who you know, had the same, you know, not just um, religious beliefs, but also social beliefs. Yeah, absolutely. So that to survive. That's a really good point, because there were interesting social beliefs that were intertwined with spiritualism. The spiritualists tended to be somewhat liberal. Mm-hmm. Um, in the 19th century, some of the social causes that they were involved with included included uh, anti-vivisectionism was a big thing because at the time as with 
still somewhat, there were horrible experiments being conducted with animals for scientific research. And they were completely opposed to that and, and very vigorously so. Um, they were pro-labor. Uh, they were often involved with the suffragette movement. And so these things all kind of intertwine. Um, in the U.S., it's interesting how many connections there are between spiritualism and um, the move to end slavery. Yeah. Um, you even see people like Frederick Douglass is hanging with the Fox sisters. Um, and yeah, and Rochester was also a kind of home to a lot of these different social movements as well as spiritualism. So you definitely get that, that sense that, this is a very particular community that is tied together by both this sort of religious belief and these social concerns. Yeah, that's fascinating. I, I think that you even put in the book that it might have been hindered um, from its continued success by the sheer notion that they achieved a lot of the goals that they set out to achieve. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, do you see a lot of intersection between you know, these sorts of old spiritual beliefs and the modern obsession with ghost hunting shows. Yeah, I absolutely do. I have a theory that spiritualism evolved and branched into two different directions. Um, on the one hand, the trance medium goes off and becomes our modern day superstar psychics. <laughs> this is where we get the Sylvia Brands and the John Edwards and, um, and then on the other hand, that sort of um, notion that spiritualism can be scientifically proven becomes the modern ghost hunting um, thing. And, and it's the same kind of thing where we believe that we have equipment and devices that can prove this, that can indicate the existence of these powers. Um, the big difference now is that anyone can get this equipment and use it. You no longer have to be a William Crooks or a scientist who is building extraordinary testing devices. So it has become much more, I guess, egalitarian in that sense. I think you can even download some apps on your phone. Yeah, you can. I know there are seance apps on there now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Do you think that it's going to grow more now? Or do you think that we've seen the peak of it over the course of the pandemic, just considering the amount of you know, stress that there is in the world? Yeah, that's a, an interesting question. Yeah. Uh, right now, I feel like maybe it's still continuing to grow, but it may flatten out within the next few years. It kind of, I think, depends on how the rest of the world goes. Yeah. I know that I've seen a pretty sharp um, uptick in you know, people getting very serious about tarot cards and astrology. Um, right. I haven't seen as much of that in terms of ghost hunting, but I, every now and then I kind of brush up on the fringes of medium internet you know, with more and more people wanting to test those kinds of skills. Yeah. I do have well, of course, astrology and tarot can be done in the privacy of your own home, yes. where if you're stuck in your home, hey, great, it's something to do. Ghost hunting does involve having to go out. And uh, I actually participate in some paranormal investigations. And I mean, it, that none of that's been possible for two years. Yeah. So that probably is part of why it seems like there's been more on the sort of 
mediumship, uh, the, the tarot and the astrology and so forth, then ghost hunting. Yeah, um, I did see some mediums on Instagram doing uh, like live shows. Yeah. I thought it was fascinating. Like It I is fascinating. I, I've checked out a few of those and it really is incredible. There's a, um, a weekly podcast that I do called Ghost Magnet with Bridget Marquardt. And um, it's an hour long interview thing. Bridget is a reality television star and she's also very knowledgeable in the paranormal. And um, I come on every week and just do a little tiny brief historical segment about whatever they're talking about. And um, it's fun. It's been really fun. And um, with that, um, I have been around some of the interesting things that the producers of that podcast are doing. Like they now do a, I think they do it every week called Scared and Alone. And it's a live streaming thing where they have a paranormal investigator who goes to a famous haunted location alone with some equipment. And there are usually three or four guests who are mediums or whatever who are watching. But you will also get people just in the audience watching who will suddenly say there is a woman in the room with you or there is um i i saw something in the corner of the frame over there and you should go check or um it's been really interesting to watch those just to see how people are reacting to them and and yeah i'll definitely have to check that out that sounds fascinating it is yeah it's really an odd thing to watch and um yes and the live the live seances are interesting too i've um we have a, a wonderful medium here in the LA area named Patty Negri. She's appeared on ghost adventures and all kinds of things. And um, she calls herself the good witch of Hollywood. And she's a, she's a wonderful person. We've become a little bit of friends through all of this. And um, she does live seances fairly often. And um, they are very, very interesting to watch. And even though you are not participating in them, in this the actual room there's definitely an odd sense that comes through just watching it live streaming and yeah i mean it it sounds like it like i i've done a few ghost tours um down in new orleans yeah has a particularly interesting history and interesting vibe as far as these sorts of paranormal beliefs go um like as far as cities go, it's probably the most accepting of paranormal belief that I've ever been to. And yeah. going through those haunted, um, you know, old plantation homes, you know, you definitely do have a certain feeling that you can't quite get anywhere else. Yeah, I- I'd love to check those out. I think that would be great. Yeah, you can find them on Facebook. Um, I think if you just go to Facebook and search for um scared and alone i think is the the thing that to, to look for i think that's also a thing that sums up a lot of our experience over the past couple of years <laughs> yeah for sure yeah absolutely <laughs> so do you have anything new that you're working on and uh where can our listeners find you um i am working on a big the biggest book I've ever done I'm working on right now I'm not supposed to reveal what it is yet but I can tell you that it is a coffee table art book oh brilliant which is something I have always wanted to do that was a real bucket list item for me so um and I will also tell you it is not a subject I have done before 
So I keep my eyes peeled for that. That's yeah, I can't wait to tell everybody what it is. It's really been fun to work on. Um, it's interesting to write a coffee table art because it kind of goes. It's very different from writing just a, a regular book, and you actually start with the illustrations. And I have already assembled over six hundred illustrations for this book. Fantastic. <laughs> So it's going to be really, really fun, and I'm I'm really having a great time with that. It's um, because it's such a big book; it's a long period on it. Um, my deadlines continue. I have various deadlines on every step of the way. Continue through October of this year, and and the book will be out in 2023. Um, and, uh, hopefully, we'll be getting a nice Halloween announcement of what it is. Then. Yes, I hope so too. Like I said, I can't wait to tell everyone what it is because it's really fun. And um, then I always have some short stories coming out. I mean, a book that's coming out in July called Classic Monsters Unleashed. I did a, a story about the Headless Horseman for that. And um, yeah, and you can always keep up with me at lisamorton.com. And if you visit the website, you can sign up for my monthly author newsletter. And it's a fantastic newsletter. I've been subscribed for a while now, and I highly recommend it. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I, I like, I love doing the newsletters, and I always try to make them fun and interesting to people, so it's not just go buy my book. Yeah, and you also have um, the book about the history of Halloween out as well, right? Uh-huh, yeah, I, I've actually written three books about the history of Halloween. Um, they are still all in print and available, and um, as well as a lot of other stuff, so... <laughs> Yeah, so I hope that we will get to hear back from you again when your next book is out. Yeah, I'd love to. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Hilary. Thanks to Lisa and Hilary for getting together to record this episode. You can find Hilary's review of Calling the Spirits in the book review section of the Folklore Podcast website at www.thefolklorepodcast.com. Calling the Spirits is published by Reaction Books, who are an amazing publisher of folklore-related titles. We'll be featuring more of their catalogue in future episodes. Don't forget that the Folklore Podcast and the Book Club are independent podcasts which are part of the Folklore Network, working hard to preserve folklore and to make it freely available for future researchers and audiences. If you can help us to keep going in any way in the current difficult climate, please consider doing so. You can join our Patreon page at patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast for just a pound a month and get extra content. Or you can make a one-off donation or buy books or other merchandise from the Folklore Podcast website. Or you can just share our content and help more people to find us. But thank you for anything you can do. We truly do appreciate it. We've been here for seven years and we'd like to keep making content for you for many more. Thanks for listening. See you next time.